Okay, cool. So we've got a lot of things that we want to talk about today, but what I wanted to uh, talk about, and it's a little bit of a longer title, but it's Jesus, the high priest of our homes. Jesus, the high priest of our homes. Uh, fathers have a really, there's a ton of reputation. There's a ton of expectation we have on the role of father uh, in our homes or in our communities. Uh, this expectation or this precedence comes usually from the fathering we experienced uh, and in addition to that, the fathering that we attempt to experience. And this can also be seen in the expectation that we have if there wasn't a father present, which if you look at the statistics of homes now, is a pretty high volume of homes. But nonetheless, we have an expectation of fathering even if there was a vacancy there. So each of us enters into this format of fathering or being fathered or partnering with someone that's fathering or for a wife that actually has a precedence and, a, and a, an expectation of fathering. And when we enter into Christianity, we get introduced to this, this paradigm concept, which is heavenly father and earthly father. And how many of you guys have studied or thought about this or seen this or encountered this heavenly father versus earthly father dynamic? It's talked about in the, in the Bible, which is, look, hey, if your earthly father did this, how much more do you think your heavenly father will give you good gifts? It's a biblical precedence and language to understand that no matter how good our fathers were, the fullness of the fathering image is seen in our God who is in heaven. And so I could be a good dad, my dad could be a good dad, but as a Christian and as a believer, we tip our hats to the fullness of fathering that is our heavenly father. We concede, we submit, we surrender, we yield to that fuller expression. And so when we see the role of Jesus in our lives and we see the role as father we're supposed to play in our homes, we set a little foundation here of understanding that there's all these kinds of expectations, whether it be the expectations we experienced and received in certain gender roles. Like some of us have experienced to be a father means that we are emotionless, we don't cry, we eat nails for breakfast, and we have this machoism and this toughness that is almost seen as non-empathetic, non-compassionate, and sometimes we experience and we receive this tough-as-nails uh, image from something, whether it be society or, or, or some version of fathering, uh, maybe our fathers came from a war dynamic. Uh, my grandfather, who fought in the World War II, was an incredibly tough man, incredibly honor honorable man. And we experience certain uh, images of fathering as like, okay, I think that's what it means to be a good father. But no matter what the expectation or experience we have, whether it be with our personal intimate family experience or society, we can all adhere to, tip our hat to, and pursue a biblical expression of fathering that doesn't exactly look like an earthly one. And if we can accept and we can embrace this common pursuit of fathering our families and fathering society in a way that Jesus approaches our families and societies, I believe it'll give us a holistic clear expression of what this ought to look like. And so we can see biblically there is, these, there is these generational concepts, and sometimes we'll call them generational curses, sometimes we'll call them generational issues, like one generation, baby boomers, or the next generation, 
Uh, and then the millennials, which is the, the, <laughs> the one we really, really enjoy. But no matter what you see in this, you see that there's these very important characteristics that we must grasp. Which if I'm going to say it up front, the point of this entire thing is that we don't champion a specific characteristic found in a generation, but we champion the nature of Jesus in all things. And when you see in the Bible the generations that got a bad rap or that were confronted by Jesus or other figures, it was the generations that resisted God. So you can point to weaknesses and strengths of a generation, but I believe the greatest asset and value of a father or a generation is a father or a generation who embraces and pursues the fullness of God no matter what the cost is. So the great characteristic of us all is this humility that says yes to the fullness of God and no to our humanity that would defy that. And we see in Acts 7, 49 through 52, right before Stephen gets stoned, his message or his sermon that got him stoned was, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of you, the prophets, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So what you see here is uh, the fathering generation got a bad rap or was confronted by the Spirit of Jesus when it resisted God when it did not adhere to the way of the Holy Spirit, when it did not understand its great role was to follow God. I believe it generationally in our society, sometimes men can get a, a misunderstanding of what their role is. And sometimes we have to be so strong or there's an expectation of so much toughness and strength that we have to pack everything down that is weakness and only show that which is the true shield of strength and toughness. And my dad never cried. My dad never showed any weakness. My dad was always some kind of grunting personification, right? And when we see these ideals, and sometimes as men, when we experience these standards, it leads us away from the path that is yielded and submitted to the Holy Spirit. See, the interesting thing about our journey with God as men and, and as any Christians or human beings is it's one of humility. It's one of actual vulnerability saying, I am incapable of being godly without God. I am incapable of fathering the way God wants me to father without the help and the aid of my God, my Father in heaven. So really, it's Jesus in my life that helps me be strong, that helps me be wise, that helps me know what to do. See, it's, it's, it's a man that is humble in his walk with the Lord that can express vulnerability and weakness and yet not lose his status as leader in the home. See, because it's never been out of a place of completion and perfection without Jesus that I am qualified to be a father in my house. 
See, I want my kids to know that I'm weak at times. I want my kids to know that I need Jesus. I want my kids to know that Jesus has blessed me with wholeness, completeness, and that without Jesus, I am at a loss and I can do nothing, which the Bible talks about. See, I want my kids to know that daddy isn't great without God. I want my kids to know, similar to Jesus, said, look, I am not good except that my father is good and I just do what he does. All of a sudden, it begins to shape and bring into form what the role of father is in a house, which is to present a yieldedness to Jesus. All of a sudden, when your role becomes just very simply an image of a yielded man to God, it makes it easy for your kids to see Jesus in his fullness because you are presently in their space and time showing a yieldedness to Jesus that you in turn want them to find for their life. See, this is where it gets really cool. See, Jesus is meant to be the high priest of our homes. Yeah, we're all called to be priests and we're, we as men are called to be priests of our homes. But even when you study out the scripture, and you see that men are the head of the wife and the household. And if you read that scripture, it's in Ephesians 5, through 33. We're not going to read the whole thing, but we're going to reference it. Because many times this head of the house uh, dynamic can sometimes convolute what our posture should look like. And sometimes this head of the household dynamic can sometimes get to our heads and that we become Lord of our house. But as head of the house, we lead our households in submission to Christ. So as men and as fathers of a home, it's not about our will being realized in the home. It's about our will leading our homes to surrender to the will of God. See, the finality of the image of God is what we are drawing our families to. The will of God be done, not my will be done, but God's will be done. And as the head of this house, I will champion the will of God. I will champion the pursuit of God's will in my life and in your life. And not only am I going to champion his will, but I'm going to teach you how to pursue Jesus so you can find his will for yourself. All of a sudden we see these things and it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. This is Ephesians 5.22. For the husband is the head of the wife, even, and this is the phrase I believe is so important, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So we are the head of the house in the sense that, in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. So even our authority in our households comes from a place of Christ's authority. And when we realize we're exercising an authority that is alien to us, it is not native to me. It is, it is actually received through the same gift that his blood redeemed me for salvation. Isn't that amazing? So my true authority as a father in my home comes as a redemptive gift in Jesus. See, this inheritance, this place comes from actual true indebtedness to God. He redeemed me. His blood bought me. His blood saved me. And it entered me into a space that with fear and trembling, I enter into fathering my kids, leading my household with this great humility and yieldedness to Jesus. Because even my authority as head of the house comes from Christ, and it is supposed to function in Christ It is not a badge I get to go around and do whatever I so will with my family. 
It is a symbol of responsibility and authority in the framework of Jesus. Not to step outside of that spirit and that nature, but to always be yielded to Jesus. To always be yielded to Jesus. To always be yielded to Jesus. Which does end up solving a lot of things. Because if you think about it, Jesus in his life, if that's truly going to author our fathering, Whoa, that is a standard to become. Whoa, is that a challenging place? And and vulnerably speaking, even as a, because fathering, I don't think, can be too separated from being a husband. Right? These two things kind of weave together, and they're connected, they're associated, they're correlated. They can't really separate from one another too much. And when I even think about my approach to my kids, when I think about my approach to my wife that I love dearly, I think about places of growth and maturity in me, and, and to be really honest, imperfection in me, and sometimes immaturity in me. And sometimes I see this, this pride of a man want to shine through in my fathering to gain control of a situation. Have you ever noticed this? You get this kind of thing, and it kind of wants to swell up in your chest, you know? And you see it in competitive environments or when you get a bunch of men around each other, sometimes it's just like, I don't know what happens, but like we become like peacocks, you know? And we just start like, what's up? And our chest, it's like, bro, you okay, man? Is your back hurting? And we start talking about our jobs, our 401ks. What do you do for a living? Kind of pecking order starts getting established and things like that. And it's just weird little nuanced thing that happens. And no one really says it out loud, but you know, it's subconscious. It's there. And, you know, you get on a, in any place, you get on a golf course. Sometimes that is like the, the breeding ground of masculinity, you know. And I actually hate golf, you know. So when I go golfing, I just immediately have to tell everyone there, hey, listen, you're so much better at golf. You're going to destroy me, but I'm still, a, I'm still a, I'm a good man. <laughs> I'm still worth something, I promise. I'm going to shoot 45 over par. I'm going to lose all of my balls. (laughs) And I'd rather just play nine holes because if we play 18 holes, it's going to take me six hours. It's going to take me six hours. This isn't an exaggeration. It's going to take me six hours or I'll lose 150 balls. Because most of those six hours is me going like this. Anybody see it? You guys... You guys, I think it dropped over here. Did you see where my ball went? They're like, no, man, we stopped looking on hole one. But what happens is that we get this this place as men, as masculinity begins to want to kick in, and and we get this kind of caveman thinking where it's like, you know, and we like physicality and dominant stuff starts to trigger into us. And they're all alternatives to what Jesus is calling us to. They're all counterfeit strength. They're all tempting for sure, but they're all counterfeit, right? Our journey with Jesus is meant to be one of living sacrifices, where we lay ourselves on the altar and we say, here am I, God, you can have my life. And can we express this in our fathering? Can we express this in our approach to our homes and our houses? See, we're talking about houses of acts, and something I think is really amazing and interesting is the whole image and vision of houses of acts Isn't that there would be like two or three in the city? But houses of Acts are really meant to be all of our homes. See, this is the beauty of Acts, right? They were going around eating and 
and sharing and communion with one another and worshiping God and, and, and adhering to the apostles' teachings in their homes. So when you visit Orlando's house, then you could experience a house of acts. And it doesn't have to be in the same exact format as my home because you're going to experience a totally different house of acts in my home. You'll think you might die because of my four kids. You'll wonder if you'll ever make it out alive and your eardrums will be severely damaged. In Orlando's home, you'll experience a peace that surpasses all understanding. But all, all this to say, look, it's going to be different expressions, different looks, different vibes. Ephesians 4 covers that really well. But nonetheless, nonetheless, our homes are meant to be the design of God. They're meant to show and express our giftedness in God. They're meant to allow people to see our humility, our transparency, and our vulnerability in our places of home. But see, we can't create a house of acts if our Christianity is just a show that we have on Sundays. Because then you got to invite people into your intimate place where your guards are down and where they can see behind the curtain. And if it's just a Wizard of Oz situation, then they're not going to get to see a house of acts. They're going to get to see a house of man. They're going to get to see a house of flesh. They're going to get to see a house of sin. They're going to get to see a house of temptation, of lust. They're going to get to see a house that's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. See, we're not talking about perfect homes and perfect fathers and perfect people. We're talking about a community and homes and, and fathers that are perfectly surrendered and submitted to God. See, there's a difference. We're not asking for perfection. We're asking for a fully surrendered and yielded people. We're encouraging it. We're provoking it. What is it that you continue to hold in your hands to control and to dictate and or to manipulate? Will you surrender it to God? Have you taken control of your kids' lives and their hearts and their emotions because you don't trust them? Can you today surrender them to God? And see, I'm not talking about having no discipline in the home and not creating these aspects and places. No, 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 no. The Bible is clear about creating discipline. The Bible is clear about these things. I'm not talking about an anti-discipline environment. I'm talking about between you and God. Do you trust God with your kids? Because if you trust him with your kids, what you'll do is you'll behave without control and manipulation, and you will feel free to behave the way Jesus behaves towards people. So if you really measure out what Jesus' behavior is towards you and I, it is not controlling and it is not manipulative. And there is a difference between the discipline that leads to godliness and a discipline that is in the vein of controlling and manipulation. And I believe it's so important that with all things we do in parenting and fathering and mothering, that it is in the form and the spirit and expression of Jesus. Now, how do you identify this? Well, you can't get away from meditation and discernment. You can't get away from studying God's word. I won't be able to give you a three-step formula today. I really won't. Because in fact, the very nature of following Jesus as a father, as a mother, and then leading our homes is actually a spirit-led journey, not one of the law. So this isn't going to ever be some kind of formula book we write. This is going to be very much in an intimate way, in a relational way with Jesus. Are you walking with him in the expressions of your fathering, your mothering, your parenting, your husbanding, your wifing? 
this is what this looks like. It looks like a, a truly spiritually yielded human being to Jesus. This is what a true priest of the home looks like because when we become priests, it's, a, it's an expression of being yielded to the high priest. So I want to hop into this priesthood dynamic because I believe it's really important. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. This is where I underline this part. If you underline things, underline them. Securing an eternal redemption. Securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Whoops, I went all the way to the top. Sometimes technology is a real bugger. Sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That's such a huge line. Sometimes I think because of the daunting task of raising kids, we think of ourselves, what's going to make my kid godly? There is a whole lot of chaos, sin, and great option for debauchery in the world. Like, have you been to a school anytime recently? You walk around and go, my kid goes here? It's sometimes nuts. And honestly, I was a youth pastor for like eight years. Christian schools, I wish they were so much better, right? They're, They're not so much better. And sometimes what it is, is a Christian school, the kids just learn to hide the sin better than the public schools. And it's not to say that in the Christian schools, there aren't good kids, there aren't good values being taught. This isn't an administrative or a principal issue. This is that young people have a great struggle to resist the evil one and the temptation of the evil one. It's just clear it's a, it's a human dynamic. You start hitting those preteen, teenage years, and it's like, <gasps> what happened to the innocence of my child? Do you know how many parents came to me when I was a youth pastor and basically said, save my kid. My kid has lost their minds. They won't listen to me. You gotta get them. And then do you know how many times parents came up to me and said, I don't know what you did with my kid, but thank you. Thank you, because they want to go to church. They love God. I don't know what you did, but I am so grateful and thankful. And that's such a good heart to have, right? Like, thankful that your kids love God. Thankful that they want to be with God. There is this Maverick City music song. It's called Talking to Jesus. And I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. And I would sing it for you if I could sing. I can't sing, so I'll talk, sing it for you. And he's talking about how his mom or his grandma brought him to church and, 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 and taught him to, about talking to Jesus. And then he had a kid, a teenager, and his kid walked in on him praying to God, worshiping God. And he's like, I want to talk to you about talking to Jesus. And he's like, now my kid's talking to Jesus. And he's like, and I hope he's talking to Jesus for the rest of his life. 
for the rest of his life. Look, I really believe that with our kids, if we can truly introduce them to Jesus, like truly Jesus, not the law of Christianity, but if we can truly introduce them to Jesus, then we've done a good thing. And sometimes we get so fixated as parents on our kids doing all the right things. And I think I want to encourage us that it's not always about our kids doing all the right things, but in all of the wrong, can they find Jesus? And so this gets really nuanced and gets really particular because I really believe that the one in me is greater than he that's in the world. So then when our kids face darkness, while at first it could be intimidating and it could be scary as parents, what we do is we go, you know what? The narrative of Jesus is more powerful than the lust of this world, than the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So I'm going to bank on the idea that the power of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus is greater than any sin spirit in this world. And it may take me testifying of the goodness of God through enduring seasons of problematic behavior and even rebellion, but I'm going to keep my love on for my kids even when they aren't in God. And I'm going to speak to them from a place of unconditional perfect love because I know it's not about the immediacy of their behavior because God can redeem and forgive all of those things. See, all of a sudden, when you choose this high priest posture, you're not intimidated by momentary sin and rebellion. Because see, what did Father God do when Israel rebelled? What did Father God do when humanity walked away from covenant? He sought to redeem covenant. He sought to give greater. He gave his son eventually for us to be able to be redeemed into great new covenant. See, Father responds in a certain way when his sons or daughters walk away from him. What does he do? He pursues in love. He gives, sacrificially even. See, this isn't for me uh, an indictment or me telling you how to parent. It really isn't. What it is for me is look like, I believe that the high priest of our homes is Jesus. I believe that Jesus knows how to parent way better than me and way better than all of us. I believe that the nature and the spirit of Jesus helps me be the best parent I could possibly be. And I really believe that if I am adhering to the spirit of Jesus, the high priest, the Holy Spirit in my life towards my kids, I believe it'll be a witness and it'll be an encounter of the true nature of Jesus in their life. And I think that when somebody truly encounters Jesus, like the true unconditional kindness and perfect love of Jesus, I believe it leads to repentance. I believe this. And you, you know, some people may call this naive, may call it ignorant, may say even, hey, that doesn't work. You got to do some other things as well. Now I get all the things that we want to do, but I, I really have bought into this idea that when somebody truly encounters the love of Jesus, they lay their lives on the altar. They lay their lives on the altar. I've seen it time and time again with kids or young adults that have walked away from Jesus and they were on drugs and they were sleeping around. They were doing everything you could be doing. And there was this perpetual and consistent love I would do in their life. And then they would turn. They would turn. And in their turn, they would at some point say, in my darkness, there was this consistent testimony of the light. In my darkness, there was this consistent pursuit of my life and it caused me to recall the goodness of God. It caused me to encounter Jesus in a way that I needed to encounter Jesus because we're, when we are in our despondency, when we are in our darkest places, we need the brightest light. And the brightest light I've ever seen in my life and in society is the deep and perfect love of Jesus. Have you seen a more profound light? I haven't. 
And there is this dynamic of our approach that's so important that we recognize what it ought to look like. First Peter 2, 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. I love this because sometimes we can get to thinking that the people we're discipling or we're reaching out to or our kids, like we are the sole author of goodness in their life. And if I don't, then who will? But we've got to remember that there is, this, there is this intercessor mediator in heaven that is pleading, that is interceding on the behalf of all of us. So I'm a part of, of God's pursuit of my kids. I'm just a part. See, God's spirit is also testifying and pursuing them. If he pursued me, he's pursuing my kids. He's pursuing Brixton. He's pursuing Brightly and Presley and Monroe. It's not just me. Jesus is seeking to build them up as spiritual houses. So I get to ask questions like, Jesus, what are you saying and doing in my kid's life? And I get to be excited with like an expectation that it's a better idea than my ideas. Like sometimes Brixton will tell me he's scared of things. My first instinct is to like be really hard on fear. That's my first like masculine instinct. Like, we're not, we're never afraid, you know? And some kind of like, you know, it's like, and I get it. Like, it's very masculine of me and it's very masculine of all of us. But there's also this idea that, look, like it's not a bark that gets rid of fear. The Bible even says, look, hey, it's, it's a really good scripture. I want to read it to you. It says, for you did not receive, Romans 8, 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. All of a sudden, every ailment, every issue and sin that your kids face, you realize that there's a spiritual father in heaven remedy to it. And if you would just throttle back and even restrain your tongue that wants to speak humanity over your kids' lives and wants to speak the gender of male over their lives, for a moment, suspend all of your ideas and ask God what he's saying and doing. Ask him what his spirit is doing in their life because his spirit is adopting them. It's literally in the process of adopting them. No matter where they're at, the Spirit of God is pulling them into the Father of God family. Pulling them into it. It's adopting them. It's going to the orphanage and going, yes. Yes. Come on, buddy. You're mine. You're mine. And what is my role in that narrative? What is my role in that narrative? I know Father God is adopting them. So what is my role in the adoption process? It's an advocate. It's saying, yeah, he's a good father. He's amazing. And look, look how cool it is. You've blown it for the last six years. It doesn't matter to him. He's still trying to adopt you as feverishly as when you were not blowing it for six years. Hey, 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 look, God really, really loves you. How amazing is it that his pursuit of you hasn't slowed down when you've rejected him greatly? How amazing is it that you've turned your back on him? You've chosen every other way except his way, and he still says, I want you, I want you, I want you. And even more so, like, look, the grace of God, where sin abounds, grace abounds that much more. Like, God's ability to adopt you becomes greater when your sin becomes greater. How amazing is this? His blood covers all of it. It's so amazing. I love it so much. And then when we see this, this reality of what Christ does in our life, 
we see this, this uh, remember in Hebrews 9, 14, it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Jesus purifies us, and it literally causes us to live like Christ. I really like what this does to my role. It removes this kind of like godlike salvation concept as a father that we can sometimes put on. Like, I got to do it all. I got to provide for my family. I got to keep order in the house. I've got to make sure my kids aren't goofy cocoa for cocoa puffs. And we, we put on all of these things to our lives sometimes, and it becomes a, a, an expectation that we are never supposed to take on. Look, yeah, we're priests in our homes, but also we're raising other priests. The new covenant is not just one person that's a priest. Look, we're all priests in this design. And if you read the scriptures, you'll see it. First Peter, uh, First Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I am a priest, you are a priest, and our kids are called and cultivated to be priests. It's so much fun and so exciting when we realize that we're all pursuing the same high priest, Jesus. And my role in my maturity, in my life experience, uh, is hopefully in my experience, I've found love and patience. Hopefully my experience has led me to this place. Sometimes people think experience is like the crown jewel of qualification. It's not. I've met a lot of experienced people that didn't find the things that experience is trying to give or teach them about Jesus. Look, experience itself is not the valuable thing. Experience can be valuable if you've spent that time with Jesus. Then your lifelong experience is one of testifying of the goodness of Jesus, not just to the pains of life. I've, I've heard many people experience, say, hey, watch out for the world. It's an ugly place. <laughs> you got to watch your back. <laughs> you can't trust anyone ever, anyone ever, especially your wife. You know, it's like you've heard some people in their pain of their experience speak a gospel that isn't Jesus's gospel. So we're looking at and we're, we're pleading to and we're pursuing Jesus. And those who have great experience with Jesus, we go, tell me more about the nature and the spirit of Jesus. Tell me more. What has your experience allowed you to see? Oh, that's so exciting. I love it. Like when we were in the different, and I know we got to finish just in a minute here. When we were in the different formats of this last journey of about uh, eight or nine months, and even a little before that with COVID and stuff, it's like I would call pastors and leaders that have been spending their life with Jesus, and I'd say, hey, man, you just got to talk to me and tell me about like <laughs> what you hear and see from this, what Jesus is telling you, because I want to hear from Jesus. And sometimes I'm buried under the intimidation factor of life. Sometimes I'm buried under the spirit thing. And what I want to do is I want to hear the voice of God that encounters my heart and that has me saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. It's so much fun. I call them up and they're like, oh, wow. And there's this patience. They're not intimidated by the problems of my life. They're not taken back and going, whoa, there's no answer in Jesus for that, brother. Looks like you're, uh, you're hopeless. It's like they speak the narrative of what Jesus is saying and doing in my life. 
There's a remedy to the fear. There's a remedy to the anxiety. There's a remedy to the depression. There's a remedy to the darkness. And when we are cultivating this adherence and this allegiance to this high priesthood, marvelous light comes out of our mouth from the spirit of Jesus. See, our priesthood is entirely fixed and dependent on the high priesthood of Jesus. It's entirely fixed and dependent on the blood of Jesus, which speaks a new thing, establishes a new covenant in our life. And I believe our great role as fathers and mothers and leaders in houses and churches and places is to cultivate a great connection and intimacy with Jesus. It's our great goal. And can we be a community that, you know, this is what this is actually about, right? Love Jesus and love people. It's can we cultivate something that is about Jesus? Like a lot of times I'll, I'll find myself as, as one of the pastors here, as one of the leaders here, going, hey, look, I, we got a lot going on, but are, have we gotten so busy in our church activity that we haven't done a great job of saying, this is all about Jesus. Who cares about all the programs? Are you growing with Jesus? We could teach you to prophesy. We could teach you to be an apostle, a teacher. We could teach you to be like all the things in the Bible. But if you have all of this knowledge and all this skill set and you don't have a great relationship with Jesus, then what was the point? You got a bunch of tools and you're a horrible contractor. You know what I mean? Because the houses you're building are like, oh. See, God's building this spiritual house. Yeah, we pick up tools and skills, but he's the architect. He's the architect. Your tools and skills without the schematics and design of God are futile. They're nothing. Mine too. It's just like without the adherence to the image of Jesus, what is it all for except for our own glory and our own gain? 